Explore the night skies with our large range of high-quality telescopes. Whether you're a novice or an astronomy expert, we have the right telescope for you in our Australian Geographic e-store. Explore the whole range and find the right telescope for you today. Go to australiangeographic.com.au slash shop. That's australiangeographic.com.au slash shop. Hi, I'm Liz Guinness and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Today I'm talking to Dr Glenn Singleman. Glenn is an emergency department doctor, a mountaineer, a base jumper and a world record-breaking wingsuit pilot. But if you think Glenn is completely fearless, you're wrong. The truth is... He's worked out a way to overcome his fears to achieve remarkable things. He's a man of many talents, which is how he came to share James Cameron's journey to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. So I'm really excited to sit down with Glenn today on this episode of Talking Australia. Hi, Glenn. How are you going? Good, Liz. How are you? I'm I'm fine, thank you. Um, So we're going to have a ranging conversation today. I want to talk to you, obviously, about your adventure exploits, um, also about being a medical doctor, working with James Cameron, and I'm really interested in your um, theories on tackling fear. So where would you like to start? You let me know. Oh, we're at, well, just start. At the beginning? And we, and we, yeah, Shall start we start at the, at the beginning? beginning? Yeah, okay, right. so how did you get into adventure then? How did that all come about? That was by accident. I, it, was an, and it was a specific day that I can remember. A medical colleague invited me to go canyoning in the Blue Mountains and I had never heard of canyoning. I just thought it was some sort of bushwalk. And when he started telling me that it involved going down these deep formations where the creeks cut through the sandstone of the Blue Mountains and the canyons are, you know, 20, 10 metres wide, but hundreds of metres deep and you walk along the bottom of them and you swim through the pools and you abseil off the waterfalls. When he said that, I stopped him and I said, sorry, abseil through a waterfall like me, a a conservative, responsible doctor. I don't think I can do that. So one of the other doctors next to me said, well, hey, Glenn, why don't you, if you can't go canyoning, why don't you do my A shift in emergency on Saturday and I'll go instead? Now, the A shift in the hospital in those days was 8am until midnight, really soul destroying yes I and i'd so. done heaps of them and i i thought well yeah i don't really want more a shifts so how bad could this be i'll just say yes and i'll go along so i went along and for half the day i was scared witless i thought i was going to die but i the other half of the day was just full of wonder and awe because i got to see this environment that I never knew existed. I had no idea that there was such a gloriously beautiful place less than 100 kilometres from Sydney. And I was blown away that I had never been here before. I'd never even heard about it before. Mm. And when I survived the day, which a few times that was a bit shaky, but (laughs) I did survive the day. When I got out, I 
sat down and sort of debriefed myself and said, well, that was an amazing place. That was an amazing experience. Why have I never done that before? Mm -hmm. And the real reason that I had never done it before was because I was afraid of that sort of thing. Activities like abseiling down a waterfall, they were just too scary. They were impossible. They were for crazy people. And I understood that that attitude had prevented me from experiencing what I regard as one of the wonders of the world. The Blue Mountains Canyons are a glorious natural wonder of the world and I'd never seen them because I was afraid. And it was an unconscious fear that, I mean, I wasn't consciously saying to myself, oh, you know, that that would be awful, that would be terrible, I couldn't do that, you know. That It was just that, oh, I don't really feel like I should do that sort of thing because those sort of people, those adventure people, they're a bit crazy. And and that was just fear. That was un, uh, the way that fear unconscious, unconsciously works in our decision-making. And so that day, that very day, I thought, wow, this is the impact that fear is having on my life. Where is it manifest? How does it manifest in other aspects of my life? And there were many mm. of them at the time. And I started to think, well, how can I start to get in control? How can I start to get over these fears? I know I'll keep going with this adventure stuff because it's just or, or you know I've been down one canyon and I've learned so much about myself yeah. and experienced a new environment maybe there's more and so I then did a whole lot more canyoning and that led me into rock climbing which was another quantum leap in terms of fear absolutely I mean facing the I remember the first time I climbed North Head in Sydney I was you know I almost needed a you know, change into iron underwear. <laughs> it, it was an incredibly confronting experience. So scary, but yet so satisfying when I got to the top, when I managed to get through that mental barrier and use my body to move around the rock and get to the top. It was it, I was. I just felt like you know. I got to the top. I thought I was Superman. I thought, I was, you know, this, this literally is the, on top of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. It was incredible. So then I kept going with mountaineering. I uh, kept going with rock climbing, and then I got into mountaineering. And then once you start mountaineering, you want to go bigger and higher, and then you end up in the Himalayas. And, and so, how long was that journey from canyoning to ending up in the Himalayas for you? couple of years couple of years I mean you have to t there are a bunch of physical skills that you've got to learn yeah, in order to to make progress but the physical skills weren't the important part for me the important part was was learning to control the fear in my psyche learning to get get more control over that horrible feeling in my guts and then I found that the more control I got in a step-by-step -step manner as I learned to you know rock you know, canyon then rock climb then mountaineer and then high altitude mountaineer that gave me a level of it gave me a physical prowess because I had to be stronger to deal with all of that stuff but I also got a mental prowess I had I developed the ability to 
over to recognize fear firstly overcome fear and then translate that into the rest of my life and overcome other fears that you know not not adventure related fears but but other things and i so my sense of self-confidence self-efficacy grew as my experience of adventure grew and then eventually i was invited to join you know, I, I wanted to know how could I do this adventure stuff professionally because it would be great to be to have a job doing what you love. Yeah. And then I found that, and I noticed that the doctor on expeditions, uh, the doctor hardly ever gets paid, but the camera person, they always do. So I went back to university and I did another degree in filmmaking so that I could be uh, wear multi multiple hats and be attractive to these national or Australian geographic type expeditions to the really remote corners of the world. I could be a, the doctor and the filmmaker. Right. And I was invited to join the Bicentennial Antarctic Expedition, which was a expedition to climb and unclimb mountain in Antarctica. And then I went on to make about six different documentaries for, uh, well, back in those days, it was National Geographic and the ABC. Mm-hmm. And my skill set, my physical skill set, my mental skill set, my emotional skill set evolved through each of those expeditions. And eventually I got to the point where I I remember meeting a guy who was a base jumper. And back this back in the nineties, you know, base jumping, no one had heard of base jumping. Yeah. And I was talking to this guy and he told me about base jumping and I realised that he followed a process, a risk management process. And that risk management process that he followed was very similar to the risk management process that we follow in climbing. So I thought, well, that's interesting. And I got talking with him and I said to him at the time, where do you want to go with this base jumping stuff? I mean, what are the possibilities? And he said, oh, I want to jump off the highest cliff in the world. And I said to him, well, where is that? He said, I don't know. And I said, how are you going to climb up to the top of it? He said, I don't know. And it so happened that the week before, I'd been reading an article in a climbing magazine about the highest cliff in the world, this mountain in the Boltoro in Pakistan called the Great Trango Tower. Yep. And I said, just said to this guy, I said, well, look, I've got an idea. I, th- I think we can do this. I think we can do it together. What we'll do is I'll train you We'll make a deal. I'll train you how to climb and you train me how to base jump and together we'll climb and base jump this highest cliff in the world. And, you know, sitting there, we were drinking a beer at the time. It seemed like a good idea over a beer. Always over a beer. And, But it actually seemed a good idea a couple of days later. So we sat down and we planned it in a methodical way. All right, what skills, what physical skills do I really need to acquire? What mental skills, what emotional skills would be needed to overcome a challenge like this. And that turned out to be a year-long project, which resulted in my friend and I climbing and, well, setting the first world record for altitude base jumping, which was off the Great Trango Tower. And that was a real mind-bender for me because when we were preparing to do it, everybody, I mean everybody, said it was impossible. Everyone said, you're crazy, you're going to die. It's it's going to be ugly. All, I mean, for everybody. But we thought about it 
differently. We thought that there are physical skills we need to learn. There are milestones in developing certain prowesses that we had to 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 part. I had to learn how to skydive out of a plane. Had to do a hundred skydives out of a plane, and then I had to learn to base jump in a off a, first of all off a bridge, which is a fairly simple one because you know there's nothing to hit once you jump off the bridge, right. and then learn how to deal with a off heading opening under a canopy so that uh, I could. F- learn to jump off a cliff and fly the canopy away from the cliff if it opened off heading. Yep. It's, and develop, there was this program of skills. And my friend, he had to learn about climbing. And, you know, that's a process that, it, that anybody can go through. So we ignore, we, we, it was hard to ignore a lot of the criticism. A lot of it was pretty personal. But we believed in the process that we were following and we just kept practicing and developing the skills and after a year we went out and did it and just it, to, sorry just to give our listeners a bit of an idea what what does trango tower look like oh trango tower yeah. is this incredible finger of granite in the in the uh, in pakistan up in the in the Baltoro mm-hmm. and a branch of the Himalaya, and it's a a wall of granite, like a finger of granite that rises six thousand feet straight up out of the Baltoro Glacier, which is already about twelve thousand feet high, and this thing pokes up to twenty. 20, nearly 20,000 feet, Lord. and it's truly an impressive sort of finger of God, you know, that pointing to the sky. It's unbelievable. So when you're climbing, is it um, ice climbing and then rock climbing or is it a combination of both? It was was mixed climbing. We we couldn't climb up the the face that we were planning to jump down. There there have been people who have climbed that face, the Mm -hmm. Norwegian route, they call it, which there was some Norwegian guys spent 43 days on that wall doing a giant aid climb and then died on the way down. So, I mean, it's a really hairy, dangerous place. We decided to pick an easier route than that one to actually climb. Wise, wise. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, we, we got to the mountain and uh, did what was the first ever Himalayan base jump. And, I mean, that went into the record books. The film that I made about that uh, won a lot of international awards. And that was all very nice. But the real breakthrough in terms of, for me, was the mental breakthrough because I understood that adventure, all adventure really, is a metaphor for the internal journey. And in an adventure... You go somewhere remote, somewhere beautiful, somewhere exotic, but the real journey is finding the similar thing inside yourself, going internally and finding the remote, finding the exotic, finding the hidden parts of your own personality, finding the skills that you need, finding the mental strength, Mm -hmm. finding the emotional balance to deal with the fear that's the real reward of all adventure and i mean i found that for 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 rock climbing for going in a kayak for hiking 
any interaction with the wilderness allows you to do that. But to go into the Himalaya, to these extreme parts of the world, let, gives you access to extreme parts of yourself, which would have been secreted away had you never gone to these extreme environments and undertaken an extreme challenge. And that is incredibly revealing, inter <coughs> internally revealing and empowering. I mean, it's possible to understand that not just me, but everybody has this incredible untapped wealth of possibility hidden away. And the only barrier is fear. We'll take a quick break and be back in a moment with Glenn Singleman. We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Plus, you'll also receive exclusive benefits, including 10% off all products purchased in our e-store. Go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia for our special offer. That's australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia. Is it possible for everyone, though? I mean, I've heard about the thrill-seeker gene. We talk about that um, in an issue of the journal. Um, some people seem to have it and some people don't. And is it nurture? Is it nature? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So... The thrill cheeky, the thrill seek, the so-called thrill seeker gene is the D4DR gene on chromosome 11. You can have between two and 11 copies of that gene, and if you have two, you're a low sensation seeker, and you're probably in admin. If you have 11, <laughs> then you do the kind of things I do, and I've done the, I've had the test. I, was I ask have 11. You. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I right. was part of the Westmead Brain Development Institute testing, and my basal level of fear is about half that of the general population and that correlates with me having 11 copies of this D4DR gene. So that gene codes for the dopamine receptor in the central nervous system. Dopamine is the feel-good neurotransmitter in the brain. Yep. So every time you do something that makes you feel good, wow that was great, that's dopamine soaking your brain. People who have 11 copies of the DR or D4DR gene, their receptors for that dopamine are less sensitive. So to get that ooh, good feeling, they've yeah. got to have more dopamine released. So they need more of an intense experience to get that mm, good feeling. So that's why... Well, there is a like a physiological chemical basis that's driving me to jump off a cliff yeah, because yeah. to get that dopamine, that's the kind of stimulus I need to get that mm, good feeling. So before you were adventuring, how did you have a sense that you were missing out on something with that, that, that gene not being fed properly or was it fed through uh, emergency room <clears throat> Yeah, well, I mean, when it, yes, it was. The, that was the kind of medicine I do. Like the kind of medicine I do is emergency and intensive care. I'm never going to be a dermatologist. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, not much I of a have, drill there, I imagine. I've got some good friends who are dermatologists. <laughs> Lovely but, people. But, you know, dermatology is 9 to 5, not 9 to 5.30, 9 to 5. <laughs> <laughs> and no one ever arrests in the middle of a dermatology consult. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas 
you know, I, I'm dealing in intensive care and emergency all the time. And so anything, anybody with any condition come through the door at any time and I've got to deal with it. And it's, it's this kind of constantly evolving crisis that happens to appeal to my personality. So, yeah, I was getting that, that in medicine. Yeah. But it was sort of <clears throat> I was – what was great was I was learning risk management strategies with other people's lives. And then – the the real insight when I started Adventure was, wow, I can apply those same risk management strategies to my own life and go and do these incredible out there things and actually manage the risk, not just take it, not just go, yahoo, I'm jumping off a cliff, woo. It's like, okay, if I'm going to jump off this cliff, I need to make sure that the cliff is vertical, that I've got the right training, that I know how to use the parachute, that my technology is right, that the weather conditions are good, that my judgment is intact so that I can make a conscious decision and say, yep, I can do this. I have the physical ability to do this. These were all risk management strategies that I learned in medicine and to apply them to my own life gave opened up this whole new world of possibility. It gave me uh, – it, it was how I went into base jumping, how I'm still alive after 20 years of base jumping, was applying those same risk management strategies, that, almost algorithmic risk management strategies that I learned in medicine. So how did you then transpose uh, those skills into then wingsuit flying? So you're gliding around the air like a like a sugar glider. How did how did that how did that happen? So once I'd done a lot of regular skydiving, a lot of regular base jumping. You had to up the ante. Is that the next thing that came along was true flying. I mean, parachuting, when I first got into it, I thought, oh yeah, it's flying. Actually, parachuting is falling. You fall out of a plane, you fall off a cliff. And that's nice, but it's short. It's quick. Indeed. And yep. it's not really flying. You're not going forward. And there's, it's been the dream of skydivers since way back in the 1930s to convert they're falling into flying. And back in the days, the barnstorming days, there were all these people, they called them Batmen, and they would they in, invented all of these systems using wings and gossamer and sticks, and they tried jumping out of planes with all these bat suits, and unfortunately they all died. There was about 70 people died trying to develop a a way to convert falling into flying. But then in 1999, a guy called Patrick de Guardian invented a suit which was a ram air suit, rather like a ram air parachute. A ram air parachute works because as it flies forward, air is rammed into the front of it and the parachute is inflated to the shape of a wing. And so as it flies forward, it generates lift. That's how a parachute worked. Patrick had this breakthrough insight that what if you had a suit that had big inlets on it, it had a wing in the arm and a wing between the leg, and air was rammed into those inlets so that the suit inflated to be like a wing. Could you fly such a thing? Anyway, he built one with a couple of friends, and... <laughs> They had a lot of trouble convincing someone to let them jump it out of a plane. Yeah, I was going to say, who was that? It was a, <laughs> was that lucky it, person? It was a big 
deal to to actually do the first ones, and the very the first ones were done off a cliff in Italy, and they discovered that they could make they could convert falling into flying, gliding anyway. The old suits used to develop a glide ratio of about two to one, two metres forward for every one metre down. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, and the suits, they started building, they got better and they got better and they got better and they got better. So that nowadays the suits that my wife and I fly, they've got like a three and a half to one glide ratio, three and a half metres forward, one Mm metre down. And they get their lift from their speed, from the air being rammed into them. So we travel at like 200 kilometres an hour now, just centimetres apart, with a glide ratio of three, three and a half to one. This has been something that's evolved. We, uh, Heather and I, started wingsuit skydiving in 2004 Mm -hmm. And then we went on to set a wingsuit altitude-based shopping record in 2006. So, and the technology just keeps get, getting better and better and better and better. And it it's like, for us, it was... I was kind of getting bored. I've got to say I was getting a bit bored with regular skydiving, you know, jumping out of plane, yeah, because it was so fast. You know, you get out of plane and you fall for a minute, then you've got to open your parachute. Well... Now we get out of a plane, we fly for three, three to four minutes before we have to open our chute. We fly, we'll get, we can fly six kilometres when we get out of a plane. Wow. And, and it's just like when you were a kid and you imagined flying, mm-hmm. it's just like that, except it's a bit faster and a bit louder. I imagine it's quite and, loud, and, yeah. And, and, and it's really intense. But it's just like that. You fly your body. You, you turn your shoulders and you bank left, you bank right, you form flocks with your friends. You can zip in and out of clouds. You can go, go, go true cloud surfing on a big towering oh, cumulus. Incredible. It's just... It's mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing what a thrill it is to be a bird. That's what it is, yeah. being a, a personalised bird. I can't even imagine. It would be amazing, absolutely yeah. amazing. Um, so you mentioned your wife, Heather. That's Heather Swan. Yes. And it's in 2006, I think, you guys yes. jumped off as at Mount Maru. Is yes. That, yeah? Can yes. you tell us a little bit about that? So when, I mean, the, the Trango Tower was uh, the first record for altitude base jumping. And I, I spend a lot of time talking to companies and schools and groups of people saying, I believe anybody could do this. If you acquire certain physical skills, and most importantly, if you learn to overcome fear, then you can do these kind of things. And everybody used to laugh and say, yeah, yeah, that's great, Glenn. Yeah. Yes, Glenn, that's fine. (laughs) Whatever you say, Glenn. And no one took me particularly seriously until Heather was in the audience. This is kind of how we met. She was in the audience. She came up to me afterwards. She said, that's incredible what you did do you really think anybody could do that and I said yes yes anybody could do this (laughs) of course and she was the first person who actually took me up on it and uh that was how we started you know going out and, and everything and about around the same time a a mountaineering friend said oh look you think you jumped off the highest cliff in the world you didn't I found one that's higher there's this other one in the Garwald Himalayan in India, you know, Mount Meru. 
And I was telling Heather about this and she said, well, wow, this is your opportunity to prove your theory that anybody you could do it. Train me and we'll... We'll do it together. It'll, it'll be really romantic. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes, push me off a cliff too. <laughs> and, and that was the beginning of a six-year journey. And like I said before, that was a physical journey. Heather had to acquire a lot of physical skills. I mean, she had no adventure experience. She, she'd never climbed. She'd never mountaineered. She'd never skydived. She'd never base jumped. She'd never winged it. She and on had, top of that, she was a afraid of heights is this true is she, yeah, yeah she was yeah, she okay. was so, well, she had a normal healthy respect for heights okay so she had to go on a physical journey but also she had to go on this mental journey to overcome fear to to confront all of that stuff that comes up when you you know, when you want to get out of a plane or climb up a big cliff or jump off a cliff or whatever, there's this, that's when you know what real fear is. You know, people often say to me, oh, that's a bit scary or whatever. You, if you want to know real fear, stand on the edge of a cliff and jump off. Jump. That is real fear. Absolutely. And you get to learn how it affects your body in its purest, unadulterated, you know, <laughs> volume 10 fear. And to learn to overcome that and to recognise fear for what it is. Because fear, fear is, a, is a protective mechanism. It's a protective reflex. It's there to protect us from danger. And it does a good job at that. But, and it, it's only got a couple of tools, the fight, flight, freeze mm. tool. Mm. And the thing about the freeze tool is that that works on an unconscious level. It stops that rabbit in the headlight thing is when people get overwhelmed by fear and they just freeze up. But that same freeze fear response is what's causing people to go, oh, I don't know that I could do that. I I, I just, you know, I, I don't think that's for me. That's actually the freeze response of fear working through the limbic system, a primitive system in the brain, Mm -hmm. pushing us via fear away from danger now once you get an insight that that's what fear is and that's what fear does you can accept fear for what it is i accept it as a protective response when i'm afraid i say thank you fear you're warning me that this is potentially dangerous however i've got a prefrontal cortex and my prefrontal cortex is able to make decisions it's able to learn physical skills it's able to acquire knowledge and most importantly it can use judgment and assess the conditions the training the technology and say yeah i'm good to go i'm good to base jump off this cliff and heather had to learn all of those skills in order those mental skills she had to learn to recognize what fear was and then go past fear and that was that was the biggest part of her journey because the just getting activating the prefrontal cortex the areas where you know what you're doing that's only a bit of the equation there's still like fear can be this incredibly overwhelming force that that can paralyze people so we we used other techniques. We used a lot of meditation, which helps um, decrease the fear reflex. And we used visualization, a technique of imagining 
a perfect base jump, for example. And from an electrical point of view, we know from MRI studies that the brain doesn't know the difference, electrically speaking, from a vividly imagined experience and a real one. So if you imagine a perfect base jump over and over and over and over and over and over again, then you can commit to a, electrically speaking, a perfect base jump and then do it. So you can manifest yeah. yeah, so you can visualise your way to success. I mean, all that stuff that everybody talks about in sales conferences. Like there neuro- is, neuro-linguistic programming yeah, and things like that. Yeah, there actually is some scientific basis to all of that stuff from an electrical point of view. And then the, the other technique that we use is breath control because you can use biofeedback techniques to fool your brain that you're relaxed because... When you're relaxed, your tummy is you're using your diaphragm to breathe. Your yep. tummy, it's going up and down, up and down, because your diaphragm's moving up and down. Whereas when you're nervous or tense or stressed or the fear response is running, your diaphragm is usually in spasm and you're breathing with your chest and you're breathing shallow because that's you're ready to want to run away from the tiger. Yes, and <laughs> and that that's not particularly yeah, that that's sending a message to your brain that you're stressed so if you deliberately start breathing with your diaphragm moving your tummy in and out moving your diaphragm up and down you're actually giving your brain biofeedback that your body's relaxed so while there's this message coming into the brain from the limbic system saying this is scary you should be afraid yeah. your body's feeding back to the brain so well actually right. i'm relaxed I'm fine it's all good and it's a way to to manage that fear and so heather heather and i We've spent a long time developing in ourselves these mental techniques and being able to access them so that we can confront the the fear involved, you know, jumping out of a plane or jumping off a cliff or climbing a big Himalayan mountain or whatever. Mm. And they've been incredibly successful techniques for us. And as we get better with these mental techniques, so we're able to acquire more physical skills, so we're able to take on bigger and more involved and greater challenges. And that's pretty much how we got after six years to break. Heather and I broke my old world record and we set a new world record for um, high altitude wingsuit base jumping when we jumped off Mount Meru in the Garhwal Himalaya in India. And the, but, you know, while it was nice to complete a physical challenge and to go somewhere extremely physically beautiful, the real breakthrough of that was the mental breakthrough, that, that understanding that someone like Heather who had no experience whatsoever in adventure was able to learn all of these techniques and then break what is possibly the most extreme extreme sport world record but what that did was it opened up her personality it opened up her her vision her possibilities her her personality her everything Mm. became so much more of what she already was she became truly fearless a fearless person and i mean fearlessness is not absence of fear it's it's recognition of what fear is and a and putting fear in its place using it like 
thank you very much, you're a warning system, but now I'm going to use, you know, my intellect, my training, my technology and my imagination to go somewhere that's never been, you know, experienced before and have an experience that uh, to experience a possibility of something that has never been. Well, I think that's that's, the thing. That's that's, that's an incredibly exciting option. Anything is possible. Anything becomes possible in your life. It does. It does. And that's an attitude. It's it's an attitude that, that comes across into the rest of life so that, you know, little things like, you know, worrying about... You know, the mortgage and the lawn and the, you know, all of that stuff gets put into the perspective that it is worrying about what politicians say, worrying about what marketers say, worrying about all the things. They're put into this kind of perspective of, you know, is it going to kill me? No, then it's optional. (laughs) That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Glenn Singleman. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and hear you next time. Thank you.